Hey, you. You're listening to Sloancast. Can you tell that I'm excited this week, guys? I'm so excited. I'm brimming with excitement. How are you doing, Ken? How are you, man? I have never been more ready in my entire life to talk about this topic than I have right now. And that's a, that's an obvious shout out to the Beastie Boys. But I was just going to say, I, what Beastie song is that? That's alive from right. 2001 right. or 2000. Yeah. Uh, and I've never felt more alive than I have right now because we have a huge topic for you this week. It's that's right. the magnum opus of Sloan albums. Um, it's a 30-track cornucopia of different sounds it's the you know the for for me the pinnacle of sloan nerddom if you'll if you'll have it that way and you know i think that this will be something that'll be a project as you mentioned that will span multiple episodes so mm. get your caffeine out fans mm, yes uh put on Hopefully. your thinking caps <laughs> Hopefully you're going on a long drive or a long trip or something, or maybe you've like you're in you've got you're an insomniac and you're up all night. Listen, I got so excited about this topic that I forgot to do the intro proper. So hey everybody, hey you, you're listening to Sloancast. We are your hosts, your best friends, your fellows, super fans. My name's Rob. This is Ken. We're a podcast here, guys, where we discuss in depth anything and everything about the greatest band of all time. Chris Murphy, Jay Ferguson, Patrick Pylan, and Andrew Scott, collectively known as Sloan. Guys, I can't again, I'm just brimming with excitement here this album never hear the end of it came out in 2006 we'll kind of go in depth and shortly we'll kind of talk about the, the years leading up but man oh man when this came out i had just moved to toronto just started a new job lots of changes going on in my life and a lot of changes going on in the sloan camp too and you know this album hit me just like right between the eyes you know I didn't expect, I was watching those little YouTube videos, Ken, you know, the ones I mean, they had some, they sure. had about, I want to say it was about 30 teaser videos that were all about 60 seconds long. Never see the end of it. That's right. I think they ended editing it into like a maybe under 10 minute sort of mega clip where they were just dropping like little bits of songs. Every single clip was just like, oh my God, you know, like I'm hearing, you know, a little tidbit of everybody wants you. And you hear that little like, Oh my God. And you see them at the studio doing it. You're just hearing these little tidbits of perfection come out. And then to hear the whole thing. And I mean, aside from the fact that it's 30 songs long, it doesn't feel like it. You know, it's a, it's a long album. It's a, it's a lot of songs. Some of them are a minute long. Some of them are sort of, you know, your traditional three, four minute song, pop song, but just listening to it in preparation for this for this show again i mean it does it, it, the, the time goes right by you know before you know it you're at another way i could do it and i'm like just like bawling my eyes out at the beauty that i've just experienced um, it's it. an incredible record and you know what guys the top the whole point for me anyway and you can you know kind of give me your your uh, impression ken the the point of this show is to not only reach out and sort of like give our interpretation of what this amazing band means to us and what these albums mean to us but you know we want to you know, remind maybe fans, people who've been, you know, fans of just specific periods, you know, even if, even if you love the band and they're your favorite band in the world, never hear the end of it is one that you always have to come back to and reappreciate, you know, like all the albums, like to be honest with you, since we've been doing the show, the show, I've really gotten back into Commonwealth again. We talked to Aaron a few yeah. weeks ago and uh, Aaron Pinto on episode three. And that one just, I mean, I, I obviously love that album, but I mean, I really started listening to it. I'm listening to 48 portraits like every day, you know, like I'm doing the dishes at night <laughs> and you know, like that's 17 minutes or however long it is, is the time it takes me to do you it. You only get one portrait a day. You can't, that's right. I, I serve myself one portrait. Um, <laughs> so anyway, but, but anyway, as I was saying, you know, the point of this show for me anyway, is to really kind of just reinvigorate 
the people, the fans and stuff to go back and listen to the album. And not only them, but to just remind the guys, should they ever hear this, of what this band means to us, what these albums mean to us, and how important they are. Because I know that the band can be kind of self-deprecating about their sort of lot in life and their place in the grand scheme of things. I mean, for me, they're the greatest band of all time. But I mean, they might see themselves against other of their, you know, their other contemporaries and say, well, maybe we didn't do as well you know, in the grand scheme as this band or that band or whatever, it doesn't matter. Okay. Like at the end of the day, you know, they're a band that really touched people deep down. And I think it's really hard to be a Sloan fan and not be a hardcore Sloan fan. It's really difficult for me to imagine yeah. somebody who just sort of tacitly likes a yeah. couple of songs. And I'm sure those people are out there or whatever, but you know, if you're into this band, you're into this band for life and their shit means something to you. You know, it's like a Smith's fan or, you know, something like that. You know, you see people, you know, I think there was a documentary about the Smiths, like the band that saved your life or something like that. Um, and, uh, Jay will correct us on that, but anyway, um, (laughs) and then that, that, that is this band for me. So anyway, that was my big preamble. I just blabbed my head off there for a second. Ken, what do you You, think, sir? You can, I mean, I can, I can feel your passion about this topic from, you know, whatever, 5,000, 7,000 kilometers away. Um, and, you know, this this album means so much to me, not just because of the phase of life that I was in at that point um, in my in my youth, as it were. You know, I was 22 years old, really just finishing university, coming of age, really getting my musical teeth sharpened, as it were, by so many different influences. But this is the one constant that's always stayed with me since September 19th, 2006, is listening to Never Hear the End of It on a weekly basis. So, you know, that's 15 years almost of listening to this album on a weekly basis because it's the biggest gift that this band has ever given to its fans. It's as you mentioned, you know, if you're if you're a Sloan fan, odds are you're a hardcore fan. It's hard to just dip your little toe in the water and be satisfied. You want to dive into the deep end. And there's no better way of diving into the deep end then pressing the play button on a 76 minute long album with 30 different tracks and just letting it take you take you away. So, I don't like to build a lot of controversy cuz there are no rights and wrongs in terms of your taste in Sloan, but I want to lead Pardon off the with pun. <laughs> <laughs> I want to lead off with a bit of a controversial controversial statement. So, you know, we know that one chord to another was almost like a farewell love letter from sloan to its fans right we're gonna break up here's our gesture to you you know we have some tracks have fun with it never hear the end of it in many ways i feel is sort of a love letter from the band to itself just based on the you know the recording story around it how the album was conceived the the band is doing what it wants and it really comes down to the end result is so sprawling and there's such a lack of a common theme and there's such a you know it's it's got such a raw appeal to it that you know you're just there there's so much that you can feed from as a fan on this album so it's almost like you know people people sometimes feel as though minimalistic albums make a stronger statement and that less is more but in this case i really very much feel as though more is more and here comes my controversial statement you know your opinion on never hear the end of it is almost a test of how serious you are as a Sloan fan. You know, I'm going to put that out there. We can talk about that in more detail later. Sure. I'd love to kind of hear in a little bit more detail, Rob, Rob, about where you were in 2006 and yeah. kind of, you know, you being a really musically inclined person, where the Canadian music scene in general was sort of in that era, 2000, 2005, mm-hmm. what's happening in 2006? 
Yeah. So, I mean, I'll, I'll go back just a second to kind of comment on what you just said, which was quite the statement, quite a declarative statement. I, I agree with you. Like, this album is a make or break for you as a Sloan fan. In a way, like, it it, it definitely caught it. it begs you to listen to it. You know what I mean? Like it's a lot to listen to, but it's also every, either every 60 seconds or every couple minutes, it's delivering. Like that's the other thing that I really notice about these songs as you go through them, like each one, you know, uh, it's not so much don't bore us, get to the chorus. It's more like, I, I can't remember who the writer was recently. I remember seeing something where they're just like, you know, if you don't have the listener in the first like five, 10 seconds, you've lost them. And every one of these songs you know, I don't know if they just sprinkle some magic at the beginning of all of them. You get, you, you know, right where the writer is coming from and you, you understand sort of the overall picture of the song in the first few seconds. And I, and I suppose that could be true of, of their other Canon, but it's really clear here for me anyway. And there is a, for me, there is a through line through the album, especially, especially for Chris and Andrew, but for everybody, they're all, they're all talking about their own lives. I think, I think they're referencing real relationships, regardless of yeah. how deep they get into it. Okay, um, I think Chris and Andrew here are being particularly open, like very raw. You know, Chris Definitely. is talking about a love that has maybe just gone by. He's he's found a new love. He's transitioning his his life between relationships, and he's letting go of the past and sort of embracing the future. And I don't want to say settling down and kind of coming to grips or whatever, but. You know, I don't want to say maturing and growing up either, but he's just sort of like, that's kind of how, that's what life kind of is, you know, like as you get older and as you begin to appreciate the relationships that you have and, you know, and I don't mean to sound like a counselor here or something, but, you know, as you move on in life, you sort of really start to appreciate things differently and appreciate a person in a, in a unique way. And he's definitely doing that, doing that. Andrew is for me kind of going back in time a lot on this album. Yeah. He's yeah. going back to the beginning of his relationship, you know, quite yeah. a bit, especially yeah. on a song like I know you, um, He's being very bare, and so on a song like you know, like on Navy Blues, sinking ships and that kind of thing, he's he's speaking about himself in that way. And we'll get into this when we kind of get into the album. But he's being very open there too. But he's doing it in a very artistic way, you know, totally. Or even yeah. even seems so heavy. He's talking about relationships, but in a very metaphorical way. On this album, that's gone. He's talking about specific times, places, people, and while he isn't naming them necessarily, like he is, he's singing right to them. And he's singing from a memory, yeah. you know, whereas I totally. think, you know, somebody like Jay has a tendency, you know, especially in the Cleopatra era, which will come in a few, come in a few years, he is singing about a, a, a person, but it's maybe more, um, what would be the word? Like the word that I'm trying to think, okay, the word I'm thinking of is impressionistic, you know? So Jay's songs are necessarily, they aren't necessarily always pointed. He's not as maybe open and raw but it's impressionistic and he's singing about somebody or something you know a memory yeah. he talks in this in this album he's re he's referenced a number of times you know going to a dance a memory of like a social gathering yeah, in this totally. case it's a halloween Can't you dance figure it out man yeah. exactly um so anyway so that's i would i would only disagree with you in a minor way just in that i really think that these guys are are singing about something for sure that would be a through line which i mean isn't always the case like there are songs if they're like rush and led zeppelin they're singing about fucking tolkien and stuff these guys are talking yeah. they're doing the thing that the beatles did great and again not to reference the beatles all the time but they wrote about love and relationships and you and me and things that we can all relate to you know and yeah. i think especially yeah. for this band on this album and especially for chris and andrew who are very raw on this album in, in terms of their Absolutely. interpretation 
conversation. So that's that's my little uh, do two cents. Before we go into before we go into two thousand to two thousand five, just like you brought up a great point here, and I'm going to make another controversial statement. In um, love is all around, and I know you. Andrew has, you know, for as far as I'm concerned, the two best love songs in the entire Sloan catalog. Hmm. What you just said about those compositions is absolutely, it's, it's, it's a, you know, it's Andrew of all people wearing his heart on his sleeve, which he's never done before. He's hiding behind these metaphors. He's hiding behind, you know, weird references and tracks that have been cut into 20 pieces. And, you know, then we have these, just like these low tempo, uh, lo-fi, really kind of almost whimsical texts Totally not Andrew. So, I mean, it's, and I, I want to get later into the dichotomy between Andrew's swagger and Andrew's uh, nostalgic love song type style in this album. But let's delve into, let's delve into the era 2000 to 2005, what's happening with you, what's right. happening with the Canadian music scene. Sure. And then we can kind of talk you know, about what's happened since the last Sloan album. Super. And we'll do that in just a sec because I'm going to do what I always do, which is take a step back. And as you said about Andrew, I will say he's writing romantic songs. Chris is also definitely for sure. He's got the one, two punch at the right at the end of the album with uh, last time in love. And it's not the end of the world. He's, he's singing about love and he's singing about relationships and it's, and it's a little tongue in cheek, um, but he's doing it in a very different way. Like last time in love is him sort of like, you know, embracing, that you know, I think something that that, that men and well, uh, women, everybody in relationships goes through, which is that spark yeah. that you feel of meeting somebody new, and loving that feeling. And is this is the last time I'm going to have that little feeling? And then sort of embracing the idea that you know what I'm going to love. I love being with somebody and being with somebody for a long time. You know, because there's something yeah. to be said about that. There's something. There's a way to appreciate that. And then uh, with uh, it's not the end of the world. It's super romantic too, but in a in a not not in a direct way. Like he's obviously singing to the person who he is no longer in a relationship with, mm. but in a very loving way. And he's sort of tying a bow on that relationship. He's letting go of the past, you know, in song. Um, so those songs are kind of interesting because for me, they they feel like they're backwards. Like it's not the end of the yeah. world. Kind of comes you know, in terms of the timeline of his life comes first, he's kind of, or maybe not, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. He's, he's embracing that new relationship and also at the same time, letting go of the past, which is an incredibly mature thing to do. Like, God, that was for me a hard thing to do, you know, in yeah. life. Yeah. And I think a hard yeah. thing for a lot of people, but anyway, blah, blah, blah. We're going to get into the brilliance of this shit in just a minute, but <laughs> <laughs> 2005 worthy on the music scene. So let's, let's go back to 2003. They put out action packed, which we'll get into, you know, in depth. That's going to be like episode you know, 40 or something. Uh, it'll be episode 2003. Uh, but anyway, um, the guys went down to California. They did the record with Tom Rothrock. The idea was they were going to kind of jig themselves out of their comfort zone, which for three albums in a row there with Navy Blues, Preaching the Bridges, and Pretty Together, it was all four guys, you yeah. know, not necessarily in the room at, at, at all times, but definitely not experimenting like they were on one chord. One chord is more of yeah. an experiment. You know, like this is like you said, a love letter to the fans. This is sort of like, we're just going to put all these pieces together and we're going to go to, you know, we're going to visit, we're going to, Andrew's going to come uh, Christmas 95 and record the drums like really quick in like a week or something, or maybe a day on a ghetto blaster. 
Navy Blues Between the Bridges Pretty Together are all recorded either in Toronto at their practice space or at a studio. And they're essentially kind of producing themselves. Like they have people yeah. helping them, obviously. But, um, you know, Action Pack, they go to LA. They're with Tom Rothrock. They're at his house. You know, they I have, have to a, assume- a producer, singular. Yeah. And they yeah. emphasize that all the time. We, we hired a producer. <laughs> right. And he's going to kind of put them in line. And I think his note to them at the time was, you know, he probably saw them live or something. And he said, you know, you guys are incredible live. Just do a record like this, you know, which is sort of like a blessing and a curse a little bit, you know, like it was, it was, it was, you know, and they've talked all the time about what, where's the fun in doing the exact same thing for every album. So this, you know, we just had a super almost like adult contemporary album in in terms of, you know, comparison to our previous work. Mm -hmm. So let's go out and do something the complete opposite this time. Let's go have fun. Let's make a basic rock album. Let's, you know, pull out all of our power chords and just mm-hmm. see what happens. And in the canon of the Sloan discography, it's it's easy to look back at Action Packed as sort of an outlier, like Smeared. And I think the guys yeah. do that sometimes. Yeah. Like, you know, Smeared, Smeared's the early one where we were kind of just like trying to sound like, you know, British, my voice. you know, yeah. yeah, post-punk or whatever. My bloody Valentine, and, yeah. Exactly. And then, and then with Action Packed, they were just trying to sound maybe a little more, I don't want to say streamlined, but, you know, I think these songs were built for radio. I mean, Rest of My Life is easily one of their biggest radio hits. Um, So they're kind of just making songs that were a little more straightforward, a little more rock and roll, maybe a little more in step with how they were performing live. Um, It's no uh, secret that they went on tour with the band Jet, you know, within the year after this. And this is documented on the Keeping the Tour Alive DVD. Um, So they were making songs in line with that kind of you know, environment, you know, and then I think it suited that environment. I think, I think frankly as well, it was a last stab of trying to get onto us mainstream radio. You know, I think that they've, they've hinted at this at, at various points across their career that, you know, Oh, well, you know, we had, we had the opportunity with Geffen and then we decided to get to go in a different direction artistically. And that kind of shot us in the foot in terms of getting our, uh, getting our foot in the door of commercial U.S. radio, but every time we put out an album, we have a big single in Canada. It just doesn't chart in the states. It doesn't get on people's lists in the states. We, I think that Chris also waxes poetic about this quite often about his, you know, his desire to somehow have that one breakthrough in the states. And I feel in many ways as though Action Pact was that one last shot at really trust. So we're going to go out and we're going to we're going to hire the guy who did. Bex Odelay, and you know, maybe he'll with his connections and with his production skills, maybe he'll land us on somebody's top hundred list. And it's all good. We, you know, and and, and I, I keep I just having thoughts running through my head. Everything I want to say about Action Pack, we'll leave it for another episode because we're here to talk about three years later. But uh, Action Pack for me, like I said at the time, feels like an outlier. At, you know. At, you know, in, in the grand scheme of things. But at the time, 2003, to me, it was just like, this is just the new Sloan album. Awesome. You're like, you know, there's no Andrew that's songs, right. but that's, that's okay. Right. And at the time, I kind of felt like a little weird that there weren't any Andrew songs because you're so used to that. And then you find out years later that, you know, well, he was having his first kid at the time. And, you know, he just didn't have songs hanging around. So it wasn't a matter of that they kind of excluded him specifically um, for making the choice of having a family, but he just kind of just didn't, it, it wasn't there. Yeah. And I mean, he, he even said himself, like he had some songs ready. He demoed some stuff and it just wasn't up to snuff, right? So he didn't want to exclude, he didn't want to force one of his tracks that wasn't ready yet onto an album um, that was quite well-rounded apart from that. So why would he displace, you know, whatever, False Alarm or another great track on the album? 
Yeah. And, and Action Packed is full of incredible songs. Absolutely. I think it's aged. I think it's aged very well. I agree. And and Andrew's songs, you know, the one the ones that he might have had kicking around. And and I was gonna get into this later, but in that um Keeping the Tour Alive documentary, he's out golfing. <laughs> And yeah. he says, or uh, maybe he's in like the bowels of a venue or something. I can't remember exactly where he says the quote, but he says something like, I got song pieces coming out of my ass, you know, like I got yeah. Yeah. pieces and stuff because they're touring action packed and stuff. And he's going to be these pieces of songs that he's got. They're going to be here present on never hear the end of it. That's right. That's right. So it wasn't all for naught. So we get from we get from that phase of their career, 2003, working working in a commercial studio, not having very much to show for it in terms of radio success in the United States. And I like to think of 2006 and never hear the end of it as being an inevitability in many ways. And I know that Andrew has been quoted as saying, I think that this is the record we've had to make for a long time. And I'm really glad that we did. And when I say inevitability, you know, I think there's, we talked about this in a previous episode um, about the prospect of a double album, Navy Blues. So combining the stuff in Navy Blues with what would have actually then been uh, between the bridges and how that might've prevented Never Hear the End of It from ever happening. So for me, that there are four main reasons why Never Hear the End of It was inevitable. The first one was they recorded it at their practice space in Toronto, which means that they weren't on the clock. They weren't paying by the hour. They had time to spare. They could take their time and let their creative juices flow. Right? This wasn't possible in LA with Rothrock. It was a little bit more possible for Pretty Together when they were working in their studio. But even you know at Chemical, they were still paying somebody to be in their space for Navy Blues and Between the Bridges just to record. Second reason... There are four singers and four songwriters in the band. So that ultimately, when you're waiting three years between albums, which is a, an eternity for Sloan at this point in their career, right? I mean, you, we've never had to wait for three years for an album before. The tracks are just going to pile up. The ideas, the ideas are just going to pile up. And especially for Andrew, as you mentioned, a guy who hasn't been on Wax since 2001, you know, he's got a bunch of ideas floating around in his head. So this was really, and I, re- I recall hearing it at a certain point in time that they had 55 tracks or something that they actually had been considering for the album or ideas or maybe segments or portions of tracks, but they whittled 55 down to 30, which is so impressive. Um, I'd love to hear the other 25 at some point. So Sloan, if you're listening, you know, this is this is all material for a re-released box set in maybe maybe we've heard time. some of these yeah maybe we've heard some of these songs in the ensuing years and just don't know it hmm. maybe so reason three why I never hear the end of it was inevitable it was a response to those last three or four albums right so navy blues between the bridges pretty together and action packed were pretty successful in canada you know they at least had singles that were very successful in canada in terms of radio play and each of them took them in a new creative direction but we didn't see that success in the States. So they pumped in this time and money to go record an album with Rothrock in LA, right? Big deal, big producer. He'd done you know, so much before and, and he's done so much since. And I think they really were hoping that that would have come to a little bit more commercial fruition and it didn't pan out. So what's the best thing you can do? Let's, let's record an album on our own terms. Let's do what we've always wanted to do. You know, let's take our time, both creatively and in terms of the actual recording process, and just make this thing an album for for ourselves and for music fans in general. 
And for the fourth reason why this was an inevitability, they'd always wanted to have their white album. They'd always wanted to have their side B of Abbey Road. They'd always wanted that sort of sweet style double album with little transitions between the songs. They kind of wanted that improvised feel to it as well. And, you know, I remember reading at some point that they just made up a lot of this stuff on the spot. Like they made up some of the shorter songs that work to bond those pieces of the pastiche. They just made them made it up, which is which goes totally against what Sloan had been about in terms of their writing and recording process leading up to that, with all this time working on demos individually and then coming into the studio basically with a finished product, right? So for me, those are the four reasons why this was inevitable to happen. And we'll get into that in a little bit more depth a bit later. Another way that the song, you know, the songs kind of all flow together in a way, but especially upon this last listen before recording here, I really noticed lyrically and instrumentally the effort that was made. I mean, you kind of hear it just in the back of your brain. You're just, for me, when I listen to these albums, I'm just listening to the songs and I just love it. Not necessarily always dissecting what I love about it. But kind of looking with a fine-tooth comb this time, I really noticed how many lyrical cues there are and musical things where, you know, a song kind of hangs and then resolves in the next at the beginning of the next song. Uh, lyrical things that tie them all together. So there's a lot going on and very impressive, like you said. I mean, even for the songs that are short and perhaps were just like a piece of a song, like Andrew talked about, and they just sort of monkey wrench them in between two other songs to kind of make sense, or, or just at the very least at the beginning of one of those songs or at the end um a, a ton going on here and an incredibly impressive feat and i know andrew specifically talked about in, a re- in an interview that i saw recently but when they asked you know his two favorite albums and this is probably a few years ago but he said you know one chord and never hear the end of it so i know that this is one that they're even when you watch the documentary yeah. online they never see the end of a documentary they're all very clearly super proud of it and it's important to note this is the last time it would be just the four of them i mean obviously in the in the room there would always be a producer and probably yeah. an engineer you know other people in the studio helping them but this is the last time, you know, at it's towards the end of this album, into the post-production and into the tour prep, that Gregory McDonald flies in from the West Coast That's and right. joins them. Right. They're sort That's of right. like de facto Billy Preston, sort of like, you know, <laughs> uh, however you want to call it. You know, th- gotta, we've got to work on the throw a little bit, but... Yeah, this this song's a little high to sing. They're just doling out the parts to Gregory. Everything that's Dude, like too but, high. I mean, they served it up. They served. You know, it was it was it was. I think that that also is a creative direction in which they wanted to go. I mean, it's they 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 served it up for him. They just listen to the album. Listen to the layers of instrumentation on this album. I mean, do yourselves a favor and listen to the rhythm section on this album. And I know when you think about a rhythm section, okay, bass and drums, right? No, the rhythm session on this album is much more than just Andrew or Chris on drums and Chris or Andrew or Patrick or Jay on bass. It's there's piano in there, there's keyboards in there, there are different guitar sounds in there. There, you know, there are sort of one string uh, guitar riffs that are doing a lot of the rhythmic stuff. There's just so much layering going on, and you got to hand it to them. It was, it was a stroke of genius to get Gregory McDonald into the live band in 2006. Cause how would they have pulled it off live? They couldn't have pulled it off live. Like I can't imagine hearing a lot of these tracks without keyboard backing. You know, it's just, it's such an integral part to the rhythm section of this music. And it ended up being a real, um, piece of locomotion in their live acts as well that whole thing what they established the style that they established with never hear the end of it led them to have to get gregory mcdonald to reproduce that live which led to that style 
being propagated throughout their 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 coming albums as well. I think that Never Hear the End of It was a turning point for them stylistically as well. And I think that we're still almost kind of feeling the after effects of of that phase in 2006. Totally agree. And and, and I really feel great, especially in retrospect. I remember at the time seeing that they had another guy kind of joining the band, at least in the sort of live capacity, studio capacity, you know, the, the yeah. four members remain, you know, like the classic archetypes, like the Beatles or Kiss or whoever are the other people coming in to help them, regardless of that fact, it's the four main guys. Um, right. But, you know, despite that, seeing how Gregory has kind of come into the band and remained the longevity he's had speaks to a number of different things. It speaks to the longevity of the band themselves. Like just, you know, the, the fact they are able and capable of keeping it all together, you know, and I think there are a lot of factors going into that, but I feel good that he's been there the whole, the whole time ever since, because it would be weird if it, you know, Greg was in for a year and then it was like Bill and Tom and, you know, Betsy and all everybody else, like just a whole bunch of different random people kind of helping them out over the years. Yeah. I think it would feel yeah. less special. So I love that when they brought in, a it new wouldn't person, feel as legit. It wouldn't feel as legit. Yeah. It would feel like, okay, well they've reached the, you know, they, they need this extra support. Right. It, they're, they're, they're less a sort of like Vegas act reviewing old classics and, you know, just the fact that he's been there and for been there as long as he's been there, it, it, it like I said, it speaks to the longevity and it just sort of makes you feel good about it in a way. And I, you know, I don't know if, if I'm really relating my thought properly, but you know, it's, it's, there's a comfort level there, you know, like Greg is there, he's been accepted by the band. Therefore, as we fan, as we, as fans, we accept him. You see, especially live, how much he brings to the table. God, totally, like totally. vocally. And I know there have been shows in the past where, you know, a certain guy in the band, you know, the, the vocals are blown out and they can't do it. And I've seen shows where Greg will sing somebody's parts, you know, like it's just, yeah. He's there to kind of be that support and uh, being on, on top of being an awesome dude, like the other guys in the band are, and they couldn't have it any other way. You know, the, the longevity that he has speaks to a lot of different positives about the whole situation. And I just like in general, that he's been there the whole time and up until right up until now. And, uh, and he's, really just, cool. he's, a, he's a, he's a good dude. He's a good dude. Yeah. I think I feel as though, you know, he's tightened up the band, not just musically, but I feel as though he's tightened up the band in other ways too. And I know that's a bit of a stretch because I don't know the inner workings of this band, but from what I can gather, having this guy in the band has really made touring a lot more special. And recording too. Like, I mean, like you were saying earlier about the, the, the various things that you hear on the album, when you go through it, you're definitely like, okay, I get it. Like a song, especially right off the top, like a song, like who taught you to live like that, for example, the piano that's going on in there, like it's, it's tough to imagine, you know, like as soon as, you know, you, you start that song in the rehearsal setting and it's like, okay, well, what's Jay doing? Is he playing guitar or is he playing piano on the song? You know? Yeah. Yeah. If he's playing, if he's playing piano, you know, that's a great visual and he's obviously able to play that part, but he can't play the solo then he can't play the guitar solo. Right. And it's such a commanding performance that, you know, I want to see Jay Ferguson standing up and singing who taught you to live like that at the front of the stage. You know what I mean? I don't want him stuck behind the piano. So right away, a decision has to be made. Well, if he can't play piano, piano is such a huge part of that song and this album. I mean, if you have the CD version, you pop that thing right open. The first thing you see on the book is a piano, you know? So, and then I assume that that it's the piano that's in their, uh, in their rehearsal space space, that we've seen in various videos and stuff. And so Gregory, they needed to have somebody to come in to help, perform this thing live up to snuff with how great the album sounds in general. And then, you know, as the albums have gone on since, and we'll talk about all those of since and, you know, whatever, you know, parallel play, double cross, Commonwealth, you know, 12, 
you know, the musical palette has only gotten brighter and wider with Greg there. And, uh, you know, like there are certain times on a, on a record, I'll hear a little part and I'll be like, ah, you know, that's That's Greg. Greg. You know? Yeah. yeah, Like you can really, and I think he, he blends into the background in a really great way, but, um, you, you can definitely hear parts in songs where it's just like, okay, that's something new. I haven't heard that before. And I can't really picture any of the guys specifically playing that, you know? So, um, anyway, blah, blah, blah. Back to the, uh, back to the topic at hand, which is sort of convening through 2003 into 2004. Um, we talked about Chris always kind of wanting a double, and a lot actually happens. It seems like, like you said earlier, like in Sloan years between 2003 and 2006, three it years, eternity. it seems like an eternity between albums, but they were doing a lot. 2004, obviously they did a ton of touring. They were in the U S right. they were on tour. Like I said, with jet, that's all captured on the keeping the tour alive DVD. Yeah. I said something in the last episode about Kevin Hilliard and some people might know him as Kevin lamps Hilliard. He does lights for them quite frequently on tours more. So these days, some people might know him as skip low from uh, one Oh, FM, the rock of the merch. Uh, people know him as the clapper. Uh, and, and when I first saw him the first time, this is, I mentioned in a, few, in a previous episode in 2007, I was there for South by Southwest when the guys were in Austin, Texas promoting never hear the end of it, the U S release. And they played a whole bunch of times. And I had, uh, kind of wandered over to a place that they call the Canadian house, uh, down there. It's just a lot of Canadian, or I guess all Canadian bands playing. And on the day that I was there, it was like the afternoon I went in, I'd go upstairs and there was a band there called uh, small sins playing and i know uh kevin had previously been in a band called the grace babies and he was the drummer in that band and in this band it appeared to that he was just literally the clapper that was his role he just you know clapped and kind of got the band into it uh sort of like joel dion and uh brian jonestown massacre that kind of vibe um but but kevin was just like next level energy and <laughs> i remember uh he sort of led the entire audience down the stairs of the house and out onto the front lawn and everybody was clapping along and just all kinds of crazy circus antics and stuff. And so my mind was blown. That was the first time I met this guy. And so Kevin kind of plays a role in the Sloan camp where he, um, is sort of a documentarian. He's, he's generally on the road with them there. And he yeah. kind of has a little bit of a triptych that goes on uh, between 2003 and 2006 in that in 2003, he's with them on the road. Uh, 2003 going to 2004, kind of chronicling, chronicling the action back tour uh, with yeah. Jet and sort of the other various dates that the guys were doing. That obviously culminates, like I said, in the Keeping the Tour Alive DVD that comes out. Um, right. And then uh, he also is the documentarian for the the coverage that is in the A-Sides win compilation, the DVD portion of the that. interview disc, the bonus. Yeah. And yeah. I, it's funny because I always remember uh, <laughs> watching it and kind of wondering who they're talking to. Like I, whenever I see sort of like Sloan in, being interviewed, like in their rehearsal space or something, I always assume it's like them, like Chris or Jay or somebody's behind the camera interviewing them. Um, but in this case it is Kevin. And, um, and then he also in 2005 going to 2006, as they're preparing never at the end of it, he's there at the space, at the studio, you know, documenting that recording process as well and doing interviews, which becomes like we said, the never see the end of it, uh, uh, 30 little mini videos that were on YouTube at the time. And I remember moving to Toronto at the time. Uh, I didn't even have my bed put together. All I wanted, all all (laughs) I wanted was my internet service hooked up so that I wouldn't miss an episode of never see the end of it. Uh, because it was a great. It was their. It was their first. It was their first uh, foray into social media, if you, if you will. Uh, you know, it was. It was. I think the first thing that I purposefully watched on YouTube. 
I remember that was maybe like a month after YouTube launched or something or a couple of months after that. And uh, they did a good job of leaking that onto their website. Um, so that that's my first recollection of actually doing anything really on YouTube. And it's the first big social media push that 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 Sloan had made. Mm. So that was fantastic. Um, and really, you know, I think that it's also just a nice glimpse into the chemistry that they had at their rehearsal space. Mm. And I'm, I'm thinking this is also something that really just contributed to um, the quality of the music music that we're hearing all together on this album. Compare that to, you know, the three of them saw Andrew working individually on their tracks with Rothrock in 2003. Um, and then Andrew basically flying down for a weekend and, and and finishing it off, you know that's something that you can't that you can't build that chemistry when you're alone with big producer guy in a in his house, you know, working on individual tracks. So um, great documentation of 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 what this band was doing. We, you know, we have to be thankful for this as Sloan fans as well. We do, there isn't a lot of documentation of how the band recorded their stuff. There isn't like apart from first person. Um, recollections of this and apart from a lot of what you know you read in things like um, has not been the same that wonderful chapter about Sloan there really just isn't a lot to show you how their stuff was recorded and you can get little glimpses of that in the never see the end of it compilation so I'm eternally grateful to Kevrock for putting that together back in 06. <laughs> totally. And a bit of history for those who don't know, I mean, this is something that I'm kind of just piecing together myself, a bit of history of with the band and in terms of their rehearsal space slash studio slash Murder Records headquarters, which remains yeah. to this day. Like they've been there at this point for 20 years, which is incredible. Um, uh, but it's based in Toronto, obviously. And so I was just watching uh, earlier today, actually, a tape that I found of the guys on Much Access TV with Rick and Rachel. Uh, and they're doing a, they're promoting Between the Bridges and they do So Beyond Me Live and they're, you know, giving away prize right. packs and answering questions and being funny and stuff. And uh, I mean, <clears throat> I've said it before, but can you find like a more charismatic group of guys to interview on TV? Like, <laughs> you know, Chris is, Chris is obviously up to his usual antics and stuff but everybody's great you know like yeah uh and i and i got and they do this little bit about uh <laughs> for their referencing paul mccartney because at the time they were recording the waterfalls cover for a mccartney, a That's McCartney right, tribute yeah. that came out later that year and uh chris starts speaking in a british accent and just keeps and just refers to just keeps saying thumbs aloft which i have to assume is some <laughs> paul mccartney reference that i don't get and like a whole two minutes later andrew is asked a question and his only answer is thumbs aloft uh which was a kind of right. an inside joke for me like some friends uh, at the time after they had uh, after that broadcast but anyway they're on the show and uh laura q in the audience is 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 mm. one of the she's a super sloan fan that obviously people in the community would, yeah. would recognize but um been in some videos and stuff and she asked a question about the fact that they just got a space and you know like uh are they using it right. and what are their plans so this yeah. would have been early january 2000 so they would have all you know, as, as of the end of 99, early 2000, Patrick's in Toronto, all the guys are there. Right. They have the space. It's unclear. They're obviously rehearsing because they're going on tour. They're about to go on the Between the Bridges tour 2000. Um, yeah. And they're announcing dates on the show and stuff. So that sort of gives you an idea of the timeline. As of, you know, late 99, early 2000, they're all settled in Toronto. They have their space. Their Murder yep. Records headquarters is there. Yep. And going forward, that'll be the base of operations for the next 20 years. And this is the place where I believe Pretty Together was tracked. Uh, 
Um, they That's obviously right. went yep. to LA with the Ro- with Roth Rock for Action Packed, and then of course they would have tracked um, the two bonus songs on A Side's Win, which would which were Patrick's All Used Up and Chris's Try to Make It, uh, which I'll touch on Fantastic. in just a sec. And but they were recorded there, and then obviously um, Never Hear the End of It is the. F- second full album recorded there um but yeah just to touch on those two bonus tracks i don't know if you have any thoughts on them but all used up obviously a patrick song they did a video for it which appears on a side's win um right. cool little diy video that looks like it was probably shot in they their did, space they did two videos for that didn't that's they? right they did the performance one which is all just kind of colors and stuff and um very like uh kind of like money city maniacs were just like primary colors and solid colors that's right and then uh try to make or sorry they did a second video for it which is like in a scrapyard with cars and stuff as i recall it's the, the beastie boy sabotage right. kind of like car tricks uh, <laughs> and isn't it andrew's car or he's driving the car or one of the two i think patrick shows up either at the beginning or at the end in like a fur coat and he's like the rishi ma like the posh guy with like you know the expensive car and then chris and jay are the two like uh you know <laughs> professional car parkers or whatever and uh, there's probably a word for that i'm just blanking on it the The valet thank you the you know not a nod (laughs) to like i don't know some movie or something but anyway um and then obviously they didn't do a video for try to make it but i i love both of these songs a lot and it's so funny because they don't really in my mind live on action packed although they're probably recorded closer to that time and they also don't really sound like anything on never hear the end of it either like they're both super songs and i I love them especially try to make it which i've always felt kind of is just an an, maybe an unconscious tip of the hat to baba o'reilly by the who it's it's basically the same chords really um it is but i feel i feel more of a cars vibe going on there it's got a bit of a new way okay sure happening for me i don't know like i never really got into the cars like full disclosure and so for me just like that that (laughs) chord progression i don't know i don't know what the chords are yeah but uh but yeah uh, yeah, i'm sorry everybody never a really big cars fan but uh, i don't know what the chord progression is but it it is sort of reminds me of baba o'reilly but anyway um yeah so and then so so try to make it is the second of the two songs and uh no video for that one but yeah love both of those and like i said they it it appears we're talking about never the end of it today it really feels like they leveled up for never hear the end of it i mean these two songs obviously they're great and i love them on this compilation but the stuff on never hear the end of it just blows them out of the water well, yeah, I mean, and the two the two tracks that we're talking about on A Sides Win are, I think that those are really just individual efforts. To be frank, I feel as though you know, um, all used up is pure Patrick. That's just a pure Patrick riff based song. Try to make it very you know Chris um, melodic wordplay uh, kind of nostalgic vibes and. I, I recall at that point in time because we hadn't heard from the band in two years. They'd been touring extensively, Action Packed. Um, Action Packed at this point in time, we know wasn't a big success, uh, or at least the same, uh, the type of success that they were looking to have in the United States, especially. And you get, you start to get nervous as a fan, right? You start to get nervous thinking like, what's going on with these guys? Oh, well, they just put out a greatest hits compilation. What was, what are you trying to tell me? And, uh, I, you know, the one glimmer of hope in that release for me was the keys and try to make it and that they're reviving the keyboard after having really, uh, you know, neglected that instrument, uh, for, for, for action packed, which was a stylistic decision. It was a conscious decision at that point in time. And I'm sure that, you know, they, they, they set out to make a rock album with guitars and, and riffs. Um, but that little, 
reintroduction of the keys was sort of oh okay you know well uh, it's good to know that they're 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 really embracing their past again here right and this is i mean this obviously sounds in retrospect for 15 years later um it sounds ridiculous but uh i got really excited about that and you know once you start seeing them as as you'd mentioned noodling around with 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 various instruments uh in the never see the end of it video compilation leading up to leading up to the album then you really start to think, okay, well, now they're really in their own um, milieu, right? They're really doing things on their own terms. They have all the time on, on their hands that they need. They're really enjoying the process. It's not like this isn't like a, it isn't drudgery. And so that's, I think, again, something that contributes to the quality of the album at the end of the day. It's just they had the time uh, and they were able to focus themselves on 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 what they on the, on the type of music that they really wanted to make and that they were capable of making. It really shows. You're right. I mean, and we were talking earlier about you know the album feeling like a lifetime from 2003's Action Pact. But I mean, in reality, when you look at the output, I mean, they've got the DVD, they've got the greatest hits, which has a DVD as yeah. well. They've got two new singles. and that tour, that Action Pact tour was like that was like a mega tour. I think I might have seen them like five times in that tour alone because they were just they hit Ottawa, you know, two or three times. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they they had two separate legs of it basically yeah that's right i remember i saw the kitchener action packed i think it was action packed well because yeah i saw them twice in that i want to say year and a half once was both were in kitchener uh once was at a place called the starlight room which i'm sure i think was action packed and then um in 2005 i saw them at i think it was called the lyric or elements or something like that and it was like a great i recall it being like a greatest hits show i think the the band the illuminati opened for them which is kind of neat because they're like kind of a wild band and um nick from that band's in a band called biblical now but anyway um so so yeah that that was like a greatest hits show as, as i recall uh, they were yeah. promoting A-Sides Win. Because I know A-Sides Win did have some dates that were kind of greatest hits. hits That's dates. right. That's right. No, you're right. You're right. So they're playing. You're they're right. playing like the whole that. time. They're playing like the whole time in between releasing these various things. So very busy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, here we go. They're they're going to hunker down in, in their home base. And that's the other thing I love about the 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 never see the end of it videos is you just kind of, I mean, obviously they're not going to put things in the video that are, you know, less than quality or you know not that are not flattering let's say um but you really get the idea that you get the sense that these guys are just having a good time you know and and i'm sure that like with any band you have like ups and downs and stuff but it just looks like a really creative environment and again like i said with all of those little 30 video drops every single one had like a nugget of a new song and all of them sounded amazing i remember you know like i said before you know hearing that little bit of the chris song and then and hearing golden eyes for the first time and all all you hear is andrew going golden eyes and all that echo and stuff it just sounded like otherworldly you know so yeah i I couldn't have been more excited for the song to come out yeah you'd heard as a fan at that point in time right it's too it's late into their career you're thinking it's 2005 this band's been around for almost 15 years 2006 um you know what are the odds that we're going to get an album you know that really caters to what we need as sloan fans right and we've been hearing well andrew didn't even have any songs on the last album because he's busy with his family and oh they just put, put out a greatest hits compilation like 
how many good albums did april wine release after their first greatest hits compilation you know so you these thoughts are running through your head and then of course you start to see the videos and you start to see okay well you know chris is hamming on patrick as usual and they're making jokes and you know there's that like i don't know there's there's the spontaneity that you missed just creatively as well on that last album um and you know it it goes to show you what we do or don't know as fans of this band you know you do know a lot because either the band is so approachable and the band is so transparent to a certain extent that you get a lot of insights into what they're doing but i feel as though at the same time you're never going to really fully understand the chemistry and dynamic of how they're doing it um until you're in that inner circle right and so this is you know a great surprise for us as fans in 2006 to see this and i recall the anticipation of just waiting for this damn album to come out because they had had um i know that they'd had a lot of the material ready in early 2006 in fact jump back to late 2005 i know that a lot of them were individually working on demos right so we don't see this as fans we don't know that each of them are working on their music intensively um and i know that chris had done a bunch of demos in late 05 with nick DeToro, who is the the former live sound guy for the band on the, right. he was the tour sound guy we see him um, in the keeping the tour live dvd actually that's right that's right nick DeToro, and um they went on tour in i, I want to say january of 06 in spain where they were supporting the soundtrack of our lives the swedish band i, I recall hearing a story that Chris was really happy with the demos that he'd done with Nick DeToro. And he was like, well, I wish, you know, I wish you'd produce an entire album of ours. And then Mike Nelson approached him on the tour and he's like, yo, you got the job. You're producing the album. And Nick DeToro was like, oh, great. When, when's that going to start? Yeah. Uh, it's going to be at a recording space and you're going to start in two weeks. And it was his like it was his first album in a production role, and of course, you know, I, I use the word producer very cautiously here because Sloan has a lot of creative input into what happens. But you know, the guy who's probably coordinating the process in general. So I remember reading that at at, at one point in time, thinking to myself, "This is you know, this is just a great reflection of of the spontaneity uh, uh, behind this album and the spontaneity and the push into it." But at the same time, right, they were out there in early 06 getting a lot of this material done and i'm not sure if you if you saw them as well in the summer of 06 in any concerts i was at um i was at a key to bala in 06 and they'd already finished a couple of the tracks to the point where they were able to perform them live i don't remember which tracks those were they performed one or two uh i believe from never hear the end of it i might be hallucinating if i'm if I'm off on this one, then please call me out. But um, summer of 06, they've got some of the material ready. So, you know, it was it was a fairly long gestation process in, in comparison to some of their other albums. But again, that just speaks to the fact that they had all the time in the world. They're not having to serve up any material for a commercial label to release by date xy and they're able to take their time in in their practice space yeah i definitely didn't have the uh, pleasure of seeing them in early or mid 2006 if i i did see them a couple of times on the never hear the end of it tour certainly into the in 2007 but um i recall there maybe being a late 2006 early 2007 ontario date that i saw i'm blanking on where that was specifically but um yeah i definitely remember seeing a show and getting seeing 
you know, the I, I, as I recall, they did open the show with Flying High again into Who Taught You to Live Like That and just being floored by how great it so, sounded live. And then, like I said, I, I got to see them in South by that year um, and see them play like, you know, a handful of times and got to enjoy the set, you know, with, I remember the Yoko Cassianos were down there as well and hanging out with them. And we, we were just yeah. at the front of the stage, like every time, every show, we literally went to all of them and we're just looking at each other like, is yeah. it just this, this is just the greatest. Yoko Cassiano's uh, open for them on the first leg of that Never Hear the End of a Tour. Fun dynamic, right. um, and also an indication of how the Canadian music scene had changed from my perspective mm. in the years 2000 to 2005, right? So you have a band like the Flashing Lights opening for them in 2000 uh, on the Between the Bridges tour, uh, kind of of the, of the old guard, as it were, um, contemporaries of Sloan in, in, in many ways, right? Uh, and by the time 2006 rolls around, like their contemporaries are gone, right? They've outlived the entire Halifax music scene pretty much. That's a good point. And, and Canadian music in general. I mean, like, I don't want to cut you off, but I mean, like you look at their contemporaries and in the sort of big shiny tunes market, like Our Lady Peace, Matthew Goodband is all but gone within the year. Yeah. Um, Big Rec had their first, uh, you know, hiatus. mm -hmm. Yeah, like Big Sugar had their first hiatus. <laughs> <laughs> All the bigs. Yeah. Nobody It was a shift to like I think broken social scene kind of changed the dynamic of indie music in Canada in the early 2000s in many ways. Yeah. Also a band that's inextricably linked to Sloan, I think in a in a in a non-direct sense, but the community in Toronto is obviously small as as you very well know. The first time that I consciously observed at that point in time that music had changed was when I when I experienced the bicycles for the first time. <laughs> and I don't want to put the H word out there because that's just really I think it's also a diminutive uh, in, in some regards. But it was the first I mean, you can use this cautiously. It was the first hipster band, I think, that I'd seen where and I say that in the sense that irony kind of played an important role in their image and irony played an important role in their music and it wasn't just like a nostalgic sound but you know they're they're consciously quoting pieces of nostalgia in a kind of funny way in a humorous way and that would like the late 90s can rock scene was took itself super seriously right (laughs) moist yeah you know like moist is there's no room for humor and moist the name doesn't allow any room (laughs) for humor so it's you know that that was that had changed and sloan just didn't have to compete with those big acts anymore right sloan wasn't out there trying to be i mother earth or they weren't out there trying to be the tea party big sugar exactly exactly oh shit i said moist right (laughs) i meant the tea party (laughs) oh did you mean the tea party i meant the tea they're the same it's the same band (laughs) well i mean david yeah the the seriousness is all there it's so funny yeah yeah, i've been like digitizing a lot of my old vhs and stuff and i've got some like i was i had a girlfriend at the time in 99 who was a huge tea party fan and you know i i liked them i guess a little bit at the time and i've i kind of grew out of them as we went into the millennium but uh i just there was a video on there it just sounded so like funny to hear that again it had been so it's been like 20 years since i've like maybe actively listened to them not not aging well but anyway whatever um you you were were talking about their contemporaries and stuff and you mentioned the bicycles i mean i can confirm for sure that you've got a bunch of Sloan fans in that band for sure, you know, and other people who were kind of making waves in the early two thousands. I mean, music really sort of slingshot again in the early 2000, 
early 2000s, you know, like in the U.S. and globally with like the Strokes and the Vines and the Hives and all the the bands in Canada, we had the Stills and that kind of thing. And and Arcade Fire kind of really ushered in a new era. And, you know, Sam Roberts was huge. You know, like 2002 was like a huge year for these, you know, incredibly huge Canadian bands that were not just like bringing guitar music back on the indie scene, but like these bands had massive hits, you know, arcade fire were huge out of the box, you know, a death from above another one. Um, there's a great, uh, poster. I think it's, I want to say 2002, 2003, 2004, somewhere there. Uh, (laughs) not very specific, but there was a Toronto Island show at the time with Sloan at the top of the bill. And I think the first band on the bill is like arcade fire. And then like the stills, Sam Roberts band, Death from above, yeah. you know, and yeah. Sloan at the top, and Sloan at the top as they where they should be, and it's just so funny to look at that poster to see just all of those bands there would define music yeah. and be so influential, and and in 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 retrospect, a band like you said, like Broken Social Scene, uh, you know, those guys, huge Sloan fans, you know, um, yeah. so Sloan yeah. are defining and or at least defining and. Uh, being the catalyst for this new wave of music, you know, like pretty together in 2001 was a huge album, you know, and then it, in, in that wake, you know, you get the 2002, 2003, you know, Sam, it's been, like I said, arcade fire, all these bands are coming out and, you know, guitar based rock music is a huge, huge deal. They're a musician's band Mm. in, in many, in many regards. Right. I mean, I think that the connections between Sloan and other bands on the Toronto and Canadian music scene aren't as direct as in many other cases. Right. But I think the fact that you're, you're setting the bar so high by being around for 30 plus years and just putting out a quality record every two years. And then of course the caliber of the music itself speaks for itself and the inspirational factor for, for other burgeoning musicians. But I think that, that, just the longevity of the band, and even at this point in 2006, right? 15 years in the year 2006 is an incredibly long time for a rock band to be around and still producing music and still producing new music, um, which I think is, uh, in, in many regards, I think this is the point in time at which that band from Halifax had now turned to, this is the Toronto-based Sloan. Right, which is what they go by now. There's, it's in 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 their in their PR communications. They're not, you know, Halifax Quartet Sloan. It's the Toronto-based band Sloan, and this is this is a sentiment that happens between 2000 and 2006. Based, I just think again on them being there, all four of them being there yeah. and being creatively productive in, in the city. But I think you have great insights into Toronto. I, you lived in Toronto. What's what's happening then in the lead up to the release of Never Hear the End of It in Toronto? What are your observations on on that atmosphere? Mm. Well, you said it. The, the band are a musician's band, you know, and for me, you know, growing up and certainly at the time, like, you know, being a music fan and collecting albums and stuff, like any band that I was into you know, a great way, I would always carry a list around in my bag. So in the event that I went into a record store, I'd have something to look for that I actually wanted instead of browsing and, you know, picking up something that's garbage, which, which can be fun too, obviously. But, uh, yeah, I would always keep a list and on my list, I would be always so curious about not only the bands that I was into, but who they liked, 
you know, and I, and I think that's always such a fun thing, you know, looking into the discography of a band, like when you find out that a band that you love likes another artist, it's just like, oh, it opens up like a treasure trove, you know, like of possibilities and albums you've never heard and influences of the band that you like and stuff. And so, you know, you mentioned it earlier, being a musician's band, Sloan are, are not only the greatest band of all time, but they were mega influential uh, on tons of artists you know from their early days you know like they they kicked off the the halifax music scene and sort of were at the crux of canadian rock music in the 90s and you know they 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 come into the millennium in 2001 with the huge pretty together and you know aside from just great albums i mean you see them live like i dare anybody to go see this band you know, see video from them back in the day, go see them today, you know, a musician or anybody, if you can play an instrument or not, it's, I find it to be almost impossible not to be inspired by their show, you know, from the musicianship to just the tightness, their show is incredible. You know, they're one incredible song after another, you know, they're amazing. So, um, so to get to kind of get that off my chest, what was going on in 2006 at the time? Um, from my recollection, you know, like I was in a band at the time that was very influenced by sort of Brit, sort of skinny tie music at the time, like Interpol, Interpol, okay. and Art Brute and that kind of stuff. Um, I think British music was obviously it is always kind of influential, but I remember at the time feeling as though it it was particularly influential. And, um, yeah, I mean, I was, I was going to tons of shows at the time, at the time and stuff. I mean, I'm thinking about local bands like uncut, you know, um, and, uh, who else would have been like, you mentioned the bicycles. I would have seen them a ton of times. Yeah. Lots, lots, lots of going on obviously in Toronto and, and really, you know, for, as everybody knows, and for, even for people who haven't lived here, I mean, Toronto is like music central for canada it's like this is where the satellite dish is you know this is where everything is much music is here obviously you know 15 plus 15 20 plus years ago much music was actually a thing and actually meant something um but you know the best venues as far as i'm concerned are here you got the most dense population here um and it's a place that's you know, close enough to the States where you can, if you're on tour, you can drive over from Detroit or Boston or people coming up from New York. You know, if you're all the way on the East coast or on the West coast, or if you're in, you know, central Canada, it's not often that you're going to get bands touring through, you know, unless they're doing like a big stadium tour and playing like once every weekend or something. Um, Sure. So Toronto sees it all. And this is a great base of operations for the guys and um, what specifically was going on in Toronto at the time kind of escapes me, to be honest. Like, I remember, uh, you know, I, I remember even <laughs> at the time, lots of crazy stuff going on. Like, I remember MySpace was putting on shows at the Mod Club and stuff. Yeah. Like, these things right. all kind of coming together. Social media is now playing a part, like we said, with their YouTube stuff. Um, like I said, MySpace would just have just launched within the year or so before this album comes out. So the digital age is really sort of upon us in a, in a new way. Obviously, Sloan Chat was around in the late 90s, early 2000s, but you know, social media in the way that we know it today is really ramping up. And that's kind of making its way into the music scene. And uh, people are kind of getting famous on MySpace. I remember that kind of being a thing, like bands who were popular on MySpace are suddenly popular in real life and, and that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, yeah. it really is the beginning of the era of homemade music Mm. that can become a viral sensation. And that 
spirit lives in in the album as well right i mean what i was very impressed by was being reminded of the fact that a lot of what's happening on never hear the end of it was recorded live off the floor like even during the process of being mixed which is not the way the band typically worked up until that point in time right with each individual member bringing in demos and then just working on perfecting that particular song and now you see and you can hear that and this is again one of the redeeming qualities of this album and one of the things that really gets you excited as a sloan fan the first time you hear that count in to flying high again and that tambourine waver on that first track you can hear the handmade quality it's just it's it's and this is this is again sort of transparent production style transparent recording style what's happening you know a lot of fans might say not my cup of tea but for me the more insight you get into how these guys work the more exciting it is and you get this across the board so you know you little little snippets of what's happening in the recording process or even that transition from living with the masses to hfx and that's hc have to not trip over my 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 uh letters there but uh you know where chris fucks up on the drums and you know counts it again i think that he's exactly um little things like that just the handmade quality i'm sure that that would have been like a big artistic decision in the 60s but i think they really just kind of spontaneously decided (laughs) to do it that way in 2006 i always heard the intro to the uh, song as more like he's like pumping himself up you know like he's pumping he's just like fucking around to get himself ready to go and then he just like i mean how many great you know how many awesome punk songs the classic thing you hear is like the the little ticking of the sticks you know and it's so fast (laughs) yeah and you know they lived that spontaneity on the tour as well because the the songs themselves just lended themselves to live performance in such a great way they're really kind of short vocally i think quite quite expansive in many in many regards but they had greg to support them on the tour at that point in time so that he, he could help out with a lot but i remember one of my favorite things about that tour was waiting for andrew to, to jump into living with the masses because you knew that hfx and shc was coming up and uh i feel as though and i don't know if you made this observation as well i feel as though they tried to do it faster and faster over the course of the tour so <laughs> when i first saw them on i went to the um so there was a release party at lula lounge in toronto right. on the 19th of september yeah. and i think that it was held you know they kept it mum up until couple days before the show so i wasn't there but i went to the official first show on the tour the next day september 20th in kingston at the ale house mm-hmm. with a couple of guys from from the sloan message board so uh shout out to sideburns dave and carmen and uh we so that, that was super exciting I, I remember being excited for the hardcore song in quotes because you know i'd heard the album right. probably about 17 times in the last 24 hours getting really pumped up for that it was fantastic and then over the course of the tour i think by the end of or mid end of 2006 when they were really kind of wrapping up that that um that second leg of the tour i guess uh it just felt as though they were just trying to get through the song as as quickly as they could and just kind of you know take the piss out of each other really and you know one one of the lingering highlights and these are the little things that you get excited about as a fan of this band 
both Jay and Andrew doing backup vocals for for you know singing the new beat generation yeah. backup vocals on, on that song, which is something that you, you're never you've never seen before, and you'll probably never see. I again. definitely got a kick out of seeing Andrew play guitar and backup Patrick on HFX and SHC for sure. Like that was so cool to see him. Like I've always loved seeing him do his track and then kind of play somebody else's on guitar, which is something we don't always see because most of the time he's just up for his songs and then back to the drums, you know. So we had mentioned. Uh, a couple episodes ago where that he would normally perform long time coming. He would play the roads and then step over to the guitar. And then here he is here yeah. um, after living with the masses backing up Patrick on guitar. And yeah, like I, I was going to just step back for a second to the, to the making of videos. That's one of my favorite episodes. I think it was called send in the clowns or something like that, where it's all the guys right. around a mic and, and Andrew's kind of teaching them soon they will be falling all around yeah. and yeah. you see all four yeah. of them line up and they're all at the same time going Bombay doors are opening like so awesome yeah I mean this is and they've mixed in parts of the of the final tracks into the into those videos so you're getting you're getting really literal snippets from from the album like I can't help but think, how incredible it is that this album was basically recorded and mixed on two laptops with like the first version of logic you know so this is the exact opposite of action packed it's the exact and it's the first album of theirs that charted in the states i mean how, what kind of irony is that it, it was always sort of a thing that was in the back of their mind and then you know action packed doesn't perform well and they decide okay well let's just do something for ourselves and let's do it on our own terms and it's so good that it hits the, the heat seekers chart uh, on the states i think it was got up to 48 or something on the heat seekers which is you know are the next hundred albums after the top hundred. Right, right. Yeah. I, I would attribute some of that too as well to Yep Rock. Because as far as I know, this is their first record with Yep Rock in the States. Um mm-hmm. great label, well established there. And I remember like like I said at that South by in two thousand seven, you know, Yep Rock was well representing them for sure. Like they had a ton of shows and I remember the little pink postcards were everywhere. Um Right. So yeah, I mean, obviously quality album, but they had a great label behind them in the U.S. as well. Yeah, it, it, it reorientation on many fronts, and this all plays into the the narrative of ours, which will probably span this podcast. The sense that 2006 is a turning point for the band, and you know, it, it now splits up into two neat halves. There's pre-2006 Sloan and there's post-2006 Sloan. And we talked about the different stages of fandom. You have the first generation fans who are kind of getting into them really in their in their first one or two albums and are disappointed as soon as something like Navy Blues hits the floor. Um, and then you have the second generation much music Sloan fans, I think, which were a part of who got into them at one chord to another or navy blues and you know it was really part of their uh part and parcel of their overall success on canadian airwaves at that point in time and then for me you have the third generation fans who are the fans that come on board prior to or just after never hear the end of it and if you're a third generation fan you love the entire catalog but you're attracted your point of attraction to the band was this new eclectic catalog that started with Never Heard the End of It in 2006 and continues to this day, both stylistically from a content perspective. And, you know, I think that 
when I listen to Commonwealth, when I listen to definitely the first three tracks on Double Cross with that 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 suite, uh, even some stuff from Twelve, which I feel is almost a throwback album in many ways to sort of their earlier recordings. I hear a lot of Never Hear the End of It in there. I hear a lot of instrumentation that's very similar to what's taking place in Never Hear the End of It. I hear a lot of artistic decision-making that's very similar in terms of that, you know, if you listen to the first three tracks and in, in the double cross. I love how they use the Mellotron in Never Hear the End of It. Um, and I really want to know if they have an actual Mellotron in their practice space. I'm thinking it's probably a synth. But one way or the other, uh, they use it sparingly, but very, very well, very Moody Blues style. And that continues on in Commonwealth, for example. So there's a lot of elements that tie back to Never Hear the End of It, which I think, again, is just a reflection of the fact that Never Hear the End of It was an album made on the, the first album in a long time made on their own terms, they're, which is what they're still doing to this day. They're laying a lot of groundwork here. You're, you're exactly right. I mean, not only with the sounds that they're producing, um, not only with their sort of mental their outlook i guess lyrically i mean chris is sort of from the band perspective probably the one who of everybody in the band is the most outward with speaking about the topic of maybe the transitions that they're going through as a band and maybe as people um because he's always very introspective and he's kind of wearing his heart on his sleeve lyrically and the other guys are in a way um but you know with a song like fading into obscurity you know, he's talking about an outsider, but in good company, you know, uh, mm. I don't want to belabor the point that, you know, they're sort of hunkering down and saying, okay, we're sort of accepting where we stand. We're going to be kind of this outsider band everywhere outside of Canada and kind of like, you know, Canada's darlings at home. And we're just going to yeah. hunker down into our space and we're just going to make albums on our own time and put them out and tour them because, you know, we love doing it and we've been blessed with this ability to make our living doing this band. So we're just going to kind of do it and not make any other really, if, if something big happens, great, you know, but it's not like we're not banking on that, you know? And so that's, this is the beginning of that. Yeah. And you, you know, we make a lot of, uh, out of Chris's big ambitions to be this star wherever. And I think that, you know, it's easy to overplay that, but you get senses of that in the other members, um, stuff as well. Like right or wrong, the J track, uh, from, from the second side of the, of the first disc. I think that he's kind of riffing a little bit on that sentiment as well. I think that there's a lot of lyric, lyrical content there that hints at whatever we do, like it's the fan, the fans are going to take it however they want. And I think that uh, there's that one line where he's like, sooner or later we'll be singing for free. I don't want to read too much into that, but uh, it's, you know, there, there, you can make of it what you will. And this is a note that I had for that song actually. Um, but yeah, that line kind of stung me a bit. I, I worked at a record store here in Toronto uh, for a number of years, uh, you know, about 15, oh, sorry, not 15 years ago, uh, like early 2000. Teens, I guess. And um, one of the things that I sort of fell backwards in doing there was organizing their in-stores. I ended up hosting them and promoting them and putting them together. And of course, when Double Cross came out, I was, you know, I had, we had to have them, you know, and I, and, and I think they'd even played like the year previous at Record Store Day in the same store, but they were nice enough to agree to do another one. And I think right after I had, you know, organized, arranged that, um, 
uh, I was listening to the album and heard Jay say, you know, sooner or later we'll be singing for free. And I was just like, ouch, you know, like, sorry guys. You know? But, but honestly, they, I think they understand the value of, you know, doing in stores and promotion and that kind of yeah, thing. Totally. So, um, and you know, whatever, but, but I was just kind of a funny thing, a, a little life moment there. Where I was just like, Ugh, you know, I, yeah. I, I hope I'm not putting them through hell or something. <laughs> yeah. All right. So to focus the conversation again, uh, just so you won't be having to listen to this podcast episode for five hours, want to kind of recap why this album was inevitable. And we talked about this at the beginning. For me, there are four reasons for the inevitability of never hear the end of it. Number one, practice space. They have all the time on their hands that they need. Number two, they're just their four singers and four songwriters. They've amassed a big amount of material since 2012. One, two thousand two, two thousand three. Number three, in many ways, a reaction to the last three or four albums stylistically, and also from a creative process in the last three or four albums. And number four, it's something that they always wanted to do, and they always wanted to have their white album, or they always wanted to have their side B of Abbey Road, and now they had the chance to make it. So that's that's the one aspect and the controversial statement that I put out there at the beginning. Never hear the end of it, and your opinion on it is for me a reflection of your seriousness as a Sloan fan, because if you don't dig these 30 tracks of rawly produced material that give you so much insight into the band's creative process, that give you so much insight into the band's ideal style when they're left to their own terms, for all for all intents and purposes, you're not a big Sloan fan. <laughs> oh God, I'm choking. Jesus Christ. You threw me for a loop there, man. Sorry. That's hilarious. And and as we get into the record here, man, I gotta mention, you know, I'm gonna be <clears throat> I bought this album on CD. And I remember actually at the time I was working like way north on the TTC subway line. I was working at like North York Center at the time. There was a record label up there. And coming down, like my commute every day, I would always pass by Future Shop, which is sort of like the poor man's record store. And I had actually worked at Future Shop, nice. you know, like a number of years later in the music section. <laughs> I, like, I like the I like their jingle though. It's a catchy jingle. Yeah, they they had some great uh, TV spots, um, and it's and it's how I got a copy like early on of like, I think I got pretty together like a couple of weeks before it came out like a promo copy of it and stuff. Um, the guy from Universal was there, and I was just like begging him for one, and he like made my day uh, with one, but. Uh, yeah, and so I remember coming down on whatever I think it was Young Street. There was a future shop up there, and I went in and found a copy of it and bought it. So as we go through the record, you mentioned side B earlier. Like I have the vinyl, and I love it dearly, and I, I listen to it. But my first impression of the record was on CD, <clears throat> which was yeah. listening yeah. to it all the way through. So I don't really, I, I won't really have much of a recollection for where the sides end and begin, um, because a lot of the songs really just you know, pile drive into each other. Like one comes right, you know, some of them, like I was saying earlier, kind of hang and then resolve into the next song. I know there are some cuts in there and there are some sort of obvious, like a song kind of ends and then the next one starts right away. So you'll have to fill me in in terms of where, you know, sides A and B sort of begin and end. Because yeah. um, my, from my perspective, it's all just one big long thought. Yeah. This is uh, so if, if, if you're listening to this, we're about to delve into Never Hear the End of It track by track. 
There are 30 tracks as a reminder, so this might end up being a four-part podcast episode. So we'll make a cut here. Thank you, everybody. If if you're listening to this, thank you for hanging in there with us as we kind of just preamble through the album. We didn't even get to the actual album yet. Um, But uh, for those out there who are so inclined, please check out the Sloan Selection podcast. Um, obviously the murder records podcast is out there. Episode two, we were talking about, uh, HFX and SHC earlier. Yeah. And if you can't get enough of that drum style, episode two uh, has a clip of, uh, actually the whole song of Chris in his sort of mid eighties punk band called whiteout. And they have a track with him on drums, which is just fantastic. And, uh, so definitely check that out. Obviously, if you're listening to this, you're probably listening to that and, uh, find us on Instagram at Sloancast. Uh, we'll catch you next time for part two of our giant walkthrough of, uh, one of the greatest albums of all time by the greatest band of all time. Never hear the end of it. We'll catch you next time. Thanks very much guys. Bye. Bye.